Chapter 4 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 4 Art Schools and University College. When all Gilbert's friends were at Oxford or Cambridge, he used to say how glad he was that his own choice had been a different one. He never sighed for Oxford. He never regretted his rather curious experiences at an art school, two art schools, really, although he only talks of one in the autobiography, for he was for a short time at a school of art in St. John's Wood, Calderon's, Lawrence Solomon thought, whence he passed to the Slade School. He was there from 1892 to 1895, and during part of that time he attended lectures on English literature at University College. The chapter on the experiences of the next two years is called, in the autobiography, How to Be a Lunatic, and there is no doubt that these years were crucial and at times crucifying in Gilbert's life. During a happily prolonged youth, he was now 18 and a half, he had developed very slowly, but normally. Surrounded by pleasant friendships and home influences, he had never really become aware of evil. Now it broke upon him suddenly, probably to a degree exaggerated by his strong imagination and distorted by the fact that he was undergoing physical changes, usually belonging to an earlier age. Toward the end of his school life, Gilbert's voice had not yet broken. His mother took him to a doctor to be overhauled and was told that his brain was the largest and most sensitive the doctor had ever seen. A genius or an idiot was the verdict on the probabilities. Above all things, she was told to avoid for him any sort of shock, physically, mentally, spiritually. He was on a very large scale and probably for that reason of a slow rate of development. The most highly differentiated organisms are the slowest to mature, and without question, Gilbert did mature very late. He was now passing through the stage described by Keats, the imagination of a boy is healthy and the mature imagination of a man is healthy, but there is space of life between. A period, unhealthy, or at least ill-focused. Intellectually, Gilbert suffered at this time from an extreme skepticism. As he expressed it, he felt as if everything might be a dream, as if he had projected the universe from within. The agnostic doubts the existence of God. Gilbert, at moments, doubted the existence of the agnostic. Morally, his temptations seemed to have been in some strange psychic region rather than merely physical. The whole period is best summarized in a passage from the autobiography. For looking back after 40 years, Gilbert still saw it as deeply and darkly significant as both a mental and moral extreme of danger. There is something truly menacing in the thought of how quickly I could imagine the maddest, when I had never committed the mildest crime. There was a time when I had reached that condition of moral anarchy within, in which a man says, in the words of Wilde, Edis with the blood-stained knife were better than the thing I am. I've never indeed felt the faintest temptation to the particular madness of Wilde, but I could at this time imagine the worst and wildest disproportions and distortions of more normal passion. The point is that the whole mood was overpowered and oppressed with a sort of congestion of imagination. As Bunyan, in his morbid period, described himself as prompted to utter blasphemies, I had an overpowering impulse to record or draw horrible ideas and images, 
plunging deeper and deeper as in a blind spiritual suicide. Pages 88 to 89. Two of his intimate friends, finding at this time a notebook full of these horrible drawings, asked one another, Is Chesterton going mad? He dabbled, too, in spiritualism until he realized that he had reached the verge of forbidden and dangerous ground. I would not altogether rule out the suggestion of some that we were playing with fire, or even with hellfire. In the words that were written for us, there was nothing ostensibly degrading, but any amount that was deceiving. I saw quite enough of the thing to be able to testify with complete certainty that something happens which is not in the ordinary sense natural or produced by the normal conscious human will. Whether it is produced by some subconscious but still human force or by some powers good, bad, or indifferent which are external to humanity. I would not myself attempt to decide. The only thing I will say with complete confidence about that mystic and invisible power is that it tells lies. The lies may be larks, or they may be lures to the imperiled soul, or they may be a thousand other things. But whatever they are, they are not truths about the other world, or, for that matter, about this world. Autobiography, page 77. He told Father O'Connor some years later that he had used the planchette freely at one time, but had to give it up on account of headaches ensuing. After the headaches came a horrid feeling as if one were trying to get over a bad spree, with what I can best describe as a bad smell in the mind. Father Brown on Chesterton, page 74. Idling at his work, he fell in with other idlers, and has left a vivid description in a daily news article called The Diabolist of one of his fellow students. It was strange, perhaps, that I liked his dirty, drunken society. It was stranger still, perhaps, that he liked my society. For hours of the day, he would talk with me about Milton or Gothic architecture. For hours of the night, he would go where I have no wish to follow him, even in speculation. He was a man with a long, ironical face and close red hair. He was by class a gentleman and could walk like one, but preferred for some reason to walk like a groom carrying two pails. He looked like a sort of super jockey, as if some archangel had gone on the turf, and I shall never forget the half hour in which he and I argued about real things for the first and last time. He had a horrible fairness of the intellect that made me despair of his soul. A common, harmless atheist would have denied that religion produced humility or humility a simple joy, but he admitted both. He only said, But shall I not find an evil, a life its own? Granted that for every woman I ruin, one of those red sparks will go out. Will not the expanding pleasure of ruin? Do you see that fire, I asked? If we had a real fighting democracy, someone would burn you in it, like the devil worshipper you are. Perhaps, he said, in his tired, fair way. Only what you call evil, I call good. He went down the great steps alone, and I felt as if I wanted the steps swept and cleaned. I followed later, and as I went to find my hat in the low, dark passage where it hung, I suddenly heard his voice again, and the words were inaudible. I stopped, startled. But then I heard the voice of one of the vilest of his associates saying, Nobody can possibly know. And then I heard those two or three words, which I remember in every syllable and cannot forget. 
I heard the diabolist say, I tell you I have done everything else. If I do that, I shan't know the difference between right and wrong. I rushed out without daring to pause, and as I passed the fire, I did not know whether it was hell or the furious love of God. I have since heard that he died. It may be said, I think, that he committed suicide, though he did it with tools of pleasure, not with tools of pain. God help him, I know the road he went, but I have never known or even dared to think what was that place at which he stopped and refrained. Quoted in G.K. Chesterton, a criticism, Alston Rivers Limited, 1908, pages 20 to 22. Revulsion from the atmosphere of evil took Gilbert to no new thing, but to a strengthening of old ties and a mystic renewal of them. The JDC was idealized into a mystical city of friends. A list. I know a friend, very strong and good. He is the best friend in the world. I know another friend, subtle and sensitive. He is certainly the best friend on earth. I know another friend, very quiet and shrewd. There is no friend so good as he. I know another friend who is enigmatical and reluctant. He is the best of all. I know yet another who is polished and eager. He is far better than the rest. I know another who is young and very quick. He is the most beloved of all friends. I know a lot more, and they are all like that. Amen. The Cosmic Factories What are little boys made of? Bentley is made of hardwood with a knot in it, a complete set of browning and strong spring. Oldershaw, of a box of lucifer matches and a stylographic pen. Lawrence, of a barrister's wig, files of punch and salt. Morris, of watch wheels, three riders and a clean collar. Vernet is made of moonlight and tobacco. Bertram is mostly a handsome black walking stick. Waldo is a nice cabbage with a vanishing odor of cigarettes. Salter is made of sand and fire and a university extension ticket. But the strongest element in all cannot be expressed. I think it is a sort of star. From the Notebook There are fragments of a morality play entitled The Junior Debating Club of a modern novel in which every one of the debaters makes his appearance of a medieval story called The Legend of Sir Edmund of the Brotherhood of the Jongleur de Dieu. Notes, fragments, letters, all show an intense individual interest that covered the life of each of his friends. If one of them is worried, he worries too. If one rejoices, he rejoices exceedingly. They write to him about their ideas and views, their relations with one another, their reactions in the world of Oxford life, their love affairs. I am in need of some literary tonic or bloodletting, says Vernet, which you alone can supply. I only hope, writes Bertram, you may be as much use in the world in the future as you have been in the past to your friends. Most of the absent club, writes Salter, separated from the others, lie together in my pocket at this moment. And Gilbert writes in the notebook, an idol. Tea is made, the red fogs shut round the house, but the gas burns. I wish I had at this moment round the table a company of fine people. Two of them are at Oxford and one in Scotland and two at other places. But I wish they would all walk in now for the tea is made. Gilbert was devoted to them all, but as we have seen, Bentley's was the supreme friendship of his youth. It was a friendship of foolery, as we are told by the dedication of Greybeards at play. He was, through boyhood's storm and shower, my best, my nearest friend. 
we wore one hat smoked one cigar one standing at each end it was a deeply serious friendship as we are told in the dedication of the man who was thursday with bentley alone he shared the doubts that drove us through the night as we two talked amain and day had broken on the streets ere it broke upon the brain most young men write or at least begin novels of which they are themselves the heroes gilbert wrote and illustrated a fairy story about a boyish romance of lucian oldershaw's while two unfinished novels have bentley for hero he is too in the medieval story sir edmund of the brotherhood of the jongleur de dieu gilbert sings like all young poets of first love but it is bentley's not his own he was as much excited about a girl bentley had fallen in love with as if he had fallen in love with her himself and where a london street has a special significance one discovers it is because of a memory of bentley's to bentley then with whom all was shared gilbert wrote when through friendship and the goodness of things he had come out again into the daylight the second thought that had saved him had largely grown out of the first the jdc meant friendship friendship meant the highest of all good things and all good things called for gratitude as he gave thanks he drew near to god dunedin lodge fourth street north borwick undated probably a long vacation in eighteen ninety four your letter was most welcome in which however it does not differ widely from most of your letters i read somewhere in some fatuous complete letter writer or something that it is correct to imitate the order of subjects etc observed by your correspondent in obedience to this rule of breeding i will hurriedly remark that my holiday has been nice enough in itself we walk about lie on the sand go and swim in the sea when it generally rains and the combination gets in our mouths and we say the name of the professor in the water babies inwardly speaking i have had a funny time a meaningless fit of depression taking the form of certain absurd psychological worries came upon me and instead of dismissing it and talking to people i had it out and went very far into the abysses indeed the result was that i found that things when examined necessarily spelt such a mystically satisfactory state of things that without getting back to earth i saw lots that made me certain it is all right the vision is fading into common day now and i am glad the frame of mind was the reverse of gloomy but it would not do for long it is embarrassing talking with god face to face as a man speaketh to his friend in another letter a cosmos one day being rebuked by a pessimist replied how can you who revile me consent to speak to my machinery permit me to reduce you to nothingness and then we will discuss the matter moral you should not look a gift universe in the mouth another powerful influence in the direction of mental health was the discovery of walt whitman's poetry i shall never forget lucian oldershaw writes reading to him from the canterbury walt whitman in my bedroom at west kensington the seance lasted from two to three hours and we were intoxicated with the excitement of the discovery for some time now we shall find gilbert dismissing belief of any positive existence of evil and treating the universe on the whitman principle of jubilant and universal acceptance he writes too in the whitman style by far the most important of his notebooks is one which by amazing good fortune can be dated 
beginning in 1894 and continuing for several years. In its attitude to man, it is Whitmanesque to a high degree, yet it is also most characteristically Chestertonian. Whitman is content with a shouting, roaring optimism about life and humanity. Chesterton had to find it a philosophical basis. Hardly, as he disliked the literary pessimism of the hour, he was not content simply to exchange one mood for another. For whether he was conscious of it at the time or not, he did later see Whitman's outlook as a mood and not a philosophy. It was a mood, however, that Chesterton himself never really lost, solely because he did discover the philosophy needed to sustain it. And thereby, even in this early notebook, he goes far beyond Whitman. Even so early, he knew that a philosophy of man could not be a philosophy of man only. He already feels a presence in the universe. It is evening, and into the room enters again a large, indiscernible presence. Is it a man or a woman? Is it one long dead or yet to come that sits with me in the evening? This again might have only been a mood had he not found the philosophy to sustain it. It is remarkable how much of this philosophy he had arrived at in the notebook before he had come to know Catholics. Indeed, the notebook seems to me so important that it needs a chapter to itself with abundant quotation. Meanwhile, what was Gilbert doing about his work at University College? Professor Fred Brown told Lawrence Solomon that when he was at the Slade School, he always seemed to be writing, and while listening to lectures, he was always drawing. It is probably true that, as Cecil Chesterton says, he shrank from the technical toils of the artist, as he never did later from those of authorship, and none of the professors regarded him as a serious art student. They pointed later to his illustrations of biography for beginners as proof that he never learnt to draw. Yet how many of the men who did learn seriously could have drawn those sketches, full of crazy energy and vitality? I know nothing about drawing, but anyone may know how brilliant are the illustrations to Greybeards at Play or Biography for Beginners, and later to Mr. Belloc's novels. And anyone can see the power of line with which he drew in his notebooks unfinished suggestions of humanity or divinity. Anyone, too, can recognize a portrait of a man, and faces full of character continue to adorn G.K.'s exercise books. Of living models, he affected chiefly Gladstone, Balfour, and Joe Chamberlain. In hours of thought, he made drawings of our Lord, with a crown of thorns or nailed to a cross. These suddenly appear in any of his books between fantastic drawings or lecture notes, as the mind wandered and lingered, the fingers followed it, and as Gilbert listened to lectures, he would even draw on the top of his own notes. He had always had facility, and that facility increased, so that in later years he often completed in a couple of hours the illustrations to a novel of Belloc's. Nor were these drawings merely illustrations of an already completed text, for Belloc has told me that the characters were often half-suggested to him by his friend's drawings. On one, at any rate, of his vacations, Gilbert went to Italy, and two letters to Bentley show how much of the way his thoughts were going. Hotel New York, Florence, undated, probably 1894. Dear Bentley, I turned to write my second letter to you, and my first to Gray, Laura Solomon, just after having a very interesting conversation with an elderly American like Colonel Newcomb, though much better informed, with whom I compared notes on Botticelli, Ruskin, Carlyle, Emerson, and the world in general. I asked him what he thought of Whitman, 
He answered frankly that in America they were hardly up to him. We have one town, Boston, he said precisely, that has got up to Browning. He then added that there was one thing everyone in America remembered, Whitman himself. The old gentleman quite kindled on the topic. Whitman was a real man, a man who was so pure and strong that he could not imagine him doing any unmanly thing anywhere. It was odd words to hear a table d'hote from your next-door neighbor. They made me quite excited over my salad. You see, this humanitarianism in which we are entangled asserts itself where? By all guidebook laws, it should not. When I take up my pen to write to you, I am thinking more of a white-mustached old Yankee at a hotel than about the things I have seen within the same 24 hours. The frescoes of Santa Croce, the illuminations of St. Marco, the white marbles of the Tower of Giotto, and the very Madonnas of Raphael, and the, the very David of Michelangelo. Throughout this tour, in pursuance of our theory of traveling, we have avoided the guide. He is the death knell of individual liberty. Once only he broke through our rule, and that was in favor of an extremely intelligent, nay, impulsive young Italian in Santa Maria Novella, a church where we saw some of the most interesting pieces of medieval painting I have ever seen. Interesting, not so much from an artistic as from a moral and historical point of view. Particularly noticeable was the great fresco expressive of the grandest medieval conception of the communion of saints, a figure of Christ surmounting a crowd of all ages and stations, among whom were not only Dante, Petrarca, Giotto, etc., etc., but Plato, Cicero, and best of all, Arius. I said to the guide in a tone of expostulation, Heretico, a word of impromptu manufacture. Whereupon he nodded, smiled, and was positively radiant with the latitudinarianism of the old Italian painter. It was interesting, for it was a fresh proof that even the early church united had a period of thought and tolerance before the dark ages closed around it. There's one thing I must tell you more of when we meet, the Tower of Giotto. It was built in a square of Florence near the cathedral by a self-made young painter and architect who had kept sheep as a boy on the Tuscan hills. It is still called the Shepherd's Tower. What I want to tell you about is the series of bas-reliefs which uh, Giotto traced on it, representing the creation and the progress of man, his discovery of navigation, astronomy, law, music, and so on. It is religious in the grandest sense, but there is not a shred of doctrine. Even the fall is omitted from this history in stone. If Walt Whitman had been an architect, he would have built such a tower with such a story in it. As I want to go out and have a look at it before we start for Venice tomorrow, I must cut this short. I hope you are enjoying yourself as much as I am, and thinking about me half as much as I am about you. Your very sincere friend, Gilbert K. Chesterton. No one would have enjoyed more than Gilbert rereading this letter in after years and noting the suggestion that the 15th century belonged to the early church and preceded the Dark Ages. And I think, too, that even in Giotto's tower, he might later have discovered some roots of doctrine. Grand Hotel de Milan, undated. Dear Bentley, I write you a third letter before coming back while Venice and Verona are fresh in my mind. Of the former, I can really only discourse of Viva Voce, imagine a city whose very slums are full of palaces, whose every other house wall has a battered fresco or a gothic bas-relief. Imagine a sky fretted with every kind of pinnacle from the great dome of the salute to the gothic spires of the ducal palace. 
and the downright arabesque orientalism of the minarets of St. Mark's. And then imagine the whole flooded with a sea that seems only intended to reflect sunsets, and you still have no idea of the place I stopped in for more than 48 hours. Thence, we went to Verona, where Romeo and Juliet languished, and Dante wrote most of hell. The principal products? One, tombs, particularly those of the Scala, a very good old family with an excellent taste in fratricide. There are three tombs, one to each man, I mean, one man, one grave, are really glorious examples of three stages of Gothic, of which more when we meet. Two, balconies, with young ladies hanging over them. Really quite a preponderating feature. Whether this was done in obedience to local associations and in expectation of a Romeo, I can't say. I can only remark that if such was the object, the supply of Juliet's seems very much in excess of the demand. Three, Roman remains, of which, however, I did not pronounce a soliloquy beginning wonderful people, which is the correct thing to do. Just as I get to this, I receive your letter and resolve to begin another sheet of paper. I did read Rosebery's speech and was more than interested. I was stirred. The old order of parliamentary forms, peerages, Whiggism, and the right honorable friends has changed, yielding place to the new of industrialism, county council sanitation education in the kingdom of heaven at hand and whatever the archbishop of canterbury may say god fulfills himself in many ways even by local government several things in your letter require notice first the accusation leveled against one of being prejudiced against professor huxley i repel with indignation and scorn you are not prejudiced against cheese because you like oranges or though the professor is not Isaiah or St. Francis or Whitman or Richard de Gallien, to name some of those whom I happen to affect, I should be the last person in the world to say a word against an earnest, able, kind-hearted, and most refreshingly rational man. By far the best man of his type I know. As to what you say on education generally, I am entirely with you, but it will take a good interview to say how much. As for the little Solomons, I'm prepared to be fond of all of them, as I am of all children, even the grubby little mendicants that run these Italian streets. I am glad you and Gray have pottered. Potter again. I have had such a nice letter from Lawrence. It makes me think it is all going to be the fair beginning of time. Had the months of art study only developed in Gilbert Chesterton his power of drawing, they might still have been worthwhile. But they gave him, too, a time to dream and to think which working for a university degree would never have allowed. His views and his mind were developing fast, and he was also developing a power to which we owe some of his best work, depth of vision. Most art criticism is the work of those who never could have been artists, which is possibly why it tends to be so critical. Gilbert, who could perhaps have been an artist, preferred to appreciate what the artist was trying to say and put into words what he read on the canvas. Hence, both in his Watts and his Blake, we get what some of us ask of an art critic, the enlargement of our own power of vision. This is what made Ruskin so great an art critic, a fact once realized, today forgotten. He may have made a thousand mistakes, he had a multitude of foolish prejudices, but he opened the eyes of a whole generation to see and understand great art. G.K. was to begin his published writings with poetry and art criticism, in other words, with vision. And this vision he partly owed to the Slade School. 
Here is a letter undated to Bentley containing a hint of what eight years later became a book on Watts. On Saturday, I saw two exhibitions of pictures. The first was the Royal Academy, where I went with Salter. There was one picture there, though the walls were decorated with frames very prettily. As to the one picture, if you look at an Academy catalog, you will see Jonah by G.F. Watts, and you will imagine a big silly picture of a whale. But if you go to Burlington House, you will see something terrible. A spare, wild figure clad in a sort of green with his head flung so far back that his upper part is a miracle of foreshortening. His hands thrust out, his face ghastly with ecstasy, his dry lips yelling aloud, a figure of everlasting protest and defiance. And as a background, perfect in harmony of color, you have the tracery of the Assyrian bas-reliefs, such as survive in wrecks in the British Museum, a row of those processions of numberless captives bowing before smiling kings, a cruel sort of art, and the passionate energy of that lonely screaming figure in front makes you think of a great many things besides Assyrians, among others of some words of Renan. I quote from memory, but the trace of Israel will be eternal. She, it was, who alone among the tyrannies of antiquity raised her voice for the helpless, the oppressed, the forgotten. But this only expresses a fraction of it. The only thing to do is to come and look at this excited gentleman with bronze skin and hair that approaches green, his eyes simply white with madness, and Jonah said, Yea, I do well to be angry, even unto death. He had learned to look at color, to look at a line, to describe pictures, but far more important than this, he could now create in the imagination gardens and sunsets and sheer color so as to give to his novels and his stories pictorial value, to his fantasies glow, and to his poetry vision of the realities of things. In his very first volume of essays, The Defendant, were to be passages that could be written only by one who had learnt to draw. For instance, in defense of skeletons. The actual sight of the little wood with its gray and silver sea of life, is entirely a winter vision. So dim and delicate is the heart of the winter woods, a kind of glittering gloaming, that a figure stepping towards us in the checkered twilight seems as if we were breaking through unfathomable depths of spiderwebs. In the year 1895, in which G.K. left art for publishing, he came of age with a loud report. He writes to Bentley, being 21 years old is really rather good fun. It is one of those occasions when you remember the existence of all sorts of miscellaneous people. A cousin of mine, Alice Chesterton, daughter of my uncle Arthur, writes me a delightful, cordial letter from Berlin, where she is a governess. And better still, my mother has received a most amusing letter from an old nurse of mine, an exceptionally nice and intelligent nurse, who writes on hearing that it is my 21st birthday. Billy an epithet is suppressed, gave me a little notebook and a little photograph frame. The first thing I did with the notebook was to make a note of his birthday. The first thing I shall do with the frame will be to get Gray to give me a photograph of him to put in it. Yes, it is not bad being 21 in a world so full of kind people. I've just been out and got soaking and dripping wet. One of my favorite dissipations. I never enjoy weather so much as when it is driving, drenching, rattling, washing rain. As Mr. Meredith says in the book you gave me, rain, oh, the glad refresher of the grain, and welcome waterspouts of blessed rain. 
It is in a poem called Earth and Wedded Woman, which is fat. Seldom have I enjoyed a walk so much. My sister Water was all there and most affectionate. Everything I passed was lovely. A little boy piggybacking another little boy home. Two little girls taking shelter with a gigantic umbrella. The gutters boiling like rivers and the hedges glittering with rain. And when I came to our corner, the shower was over. And there was a great watery sunset right over number 80. What Mr. Ruskin calls an opening into eternity. Eternity is pink and gold. This may seem a very strange rant, but it is one of my specimen days. I suppose you could really prefer me to write as I feel, and I am so constituted that these daily incidents get me that way. Yes, I like rain. It means something. I'm not sure what. Something refreshing. Cleaning. Washing out. Taking in hand. Not caring a damn what you think. Doing its duty. Robust. Noisy. Moral. Wet. It is the baptism of the church of the future. Yesterday afternoon, Sunday, Lawrence and Morris came here. We were merely infants at play, had skipping races around the garden and otherwise raced. Runner, run thy race, said Confucius, and in the running, find strength and reward. After that, we tried talking about Magnus and came to some hopeful conclusions. Magnus is all right. As for Lawrence and Gray, if there is anything righter than all right, they are that. There's an expression in Meredith's book which struck me immensely. The largeness of the evening earth. The sensation that the cosmos has all its windows open is very characteristic of evening. Just as it is at this moment, I feel very good. Everything out the window looks very, very flat and yellow. I do not know how else to describe it. It is like the benediction at the end of the service. End of chapter 4